G'day, I'm Ian Swain, the owner and president of Swain Destinations, the company that customises travel experiences to Australia, New Zealand, South Pacific Islands, Africa, Asia and India. And welcome to another G'day with Ian Swain. Today we're going back to my homeland again of Australia. Matt Cameron Smith has been a mate of mine for quite a few years and held different managerial roles in the tourism industry from hotels, theme parks, government and winery activities, and he's now the CEO of Voyages Indigenous Tourism. Voyages is owned by the Indigenous Land Council and manages their tourism entities, which was started many years ago. Ayers Rock Resort, which has numerous hotels such as Sales in the Desert, Desert Gardens, Outback Pioneer, Lost Camel and Emu Walk, are their largest accommodation group. They also run the Mossman Gorge Centre in Queensland. So g'day Matt and thanks for sharing this time with us today. G'day Ian, always great to see you. Thanks for your time. Mate, just tell us a little bit about more the Indigenous Land Corporation. Absolutely. So our, our focus is very much on being a purpose-led organisation and that comes in, in several ways. Certainly it's about delivering authentic Indigenous experiences to, to travellers, both domestic and international. But it's also about ensuring ongoing employment opportunities, jobs uh, for Indigenous people. And so it's, it's about an annuity-style return to them to ensure that we're providing education and training, but also that we're giving our guests uh, the real Australia. Now, Matt, I mentioned Ayers Rock Resort as a name, yet Uluru is the, is the Aboriginal name for the rock. Why didn't you call it Uluru Resort? We went through a process several years ago uh, with the local traditional owners, uh, and that is uh, the Anunu people. And Uluru, importantly, is actually a family name. So Reggie Uluru is still living out of the resort, out, out of the rock. And as we went through that consultation process, when we went from Ayers Rock to Uluru, Uluru is actually their family name. And it was their preference that we keep the name of the resort and the, I guess, the icon or the traditional aspect of that land separated. And where we landed was to uh, ensure we always refer to the rock as Uluru and that we refer to the resort as Ayers Rock Resort. The, 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 I guess the village itself or the township itself is called Yalara. Right, and before we get to the experiences that you can have out there, let's talk about Yalara and, and the actual hotels that are there and explain the differences. You've got quite a few I mentioned from Sales, Desert Gardens, Outback Pioneer, Lost Camel, Emu, Emu Walk. What is the difference between them all and, and how they all fit into the puzzle of the travel in, industry? It starts with the campground and we have a combination of powered and non-powered sites plus a camping area. Uh, there's a pool there, there's amenities. We have a very cool food truck that comes out there. Uh, guests can use, but of course they can also access the facilities uh, and, the, and the food and beverage outlets within the property itself. So the campground's where we start. We then go into Outback Pioneer, which is uh, quite deliberately a, a sort of rustic Outback pub kind of feel about it. Uh, sitting out there in the beer garden, there's a, um, usually a lamb on the spit, there's a cook your own steak, there's a restaurant. And it's more of our, our three-star kind of accommodation. Very popular with international travellers because it really gives that sense of being in the outback. We would then go to our Amy Walk Apartments. Uh, great for families, self-contained, one and two bedroom apartments. Very well uh, uh, fitted out for families and located for, uh, right in the middle of the property or towards the middle of the property. Uh, we would then go to the Lost Camel, which is uh, refurbed about four years ago. And looking fantastic, Lost Camel is, a, again, a very strong three, three and a half star kind of offering uh, and linked to the main spine of, of the resort. From there, we go to Desert Gardens, where you've got these amazing rock view rooms and garden view rooms. Desert Gardens has uh, an Uli Grill, which is uh, one of my favourites, uh, a fantastic grill restaurant, 
uh, I'd say it's more towards the fine dining side, a la carte, an amazing coffee shop and bar. And then we move into uh, the icon, which is sales in the desert. And that's our five-star property uh, with Okari restaurants, uh, which is buffet breakfast and dinner, uh, Walpa bar, and of course our pool bar where you can relax. Now you can go between all the different food outlets, can't you, once you're on property? Yeah, in fact, we have 13 different food and beverage outlets. And that is anything from our fine dining through to probably one of my favourites, and that is uh, uh, Kalata Cafe. And that's our training cafe for our Indigenous trainees. So they make an amazing soy flat white for those of you who, are, who, who like a great coffee. Now, talking about just what you're talking about, educating the locals, you've got a course out there or an, or an establishment that tra trains and educates locals in the travel industry. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because it's intriguing to me. So back in 2011, we established the National Indigenous Training Academy. And that really is about giving uh, Indigenous uh, kids hard skills and on-the-job training. Uh, in uh, and, and importantly, a certification. So we work with two institutes. One is the Charles Darwin University. Uh, out of the top end and the other is the William Anglis Institute and our graduates after a year of residential training actually come out with a, a nationally recognized certification in either retail hospitality or horticulture and their skills learnt on the job and we run those facilities in both Mossman Gorge and Yulara and in fact just Saturday just gone I was up at the property and we celebrated 43 graduates coming through and 93 percent uh, success rate even during COVID which we're very proud of and that we actually celebrated our 523rd graduate uh, which takes which now makes us the most successful Indigenous uh, training academy in those disciplines anywhere in Australia and we're very proud of that. Well, that's great now do you employ everybody coming through the course or are they able to get jobs in other other destinations and other uh, companies? Well where possible uh, we always want to retain the team and uh, that's, that's part of the program is that they're retained within the property or within voyages somewhere and uh, we like to think of it not just about a job it's about a career however in uh, areas like Mosman Gorge where it's a bit more seasonal we have a great relationship with our partners at Accor and our trainees can actually go and work in some of those amazing Accor properties in Palm Cove and, and Port Douglas. So it's important that we provide a pathway and a, and a career as well as a job with us uh, if that's their choice. That's great for the uh, Indigenous people and it's just going to grow and grow. Is there a scope to make that larger? Absolutely. As we look to expand, Ian, you know, we always got our, our eye on opportunities elsewhere in Australia, certainly through the Northern Territory and broader. And as we can grow our property portfolio, our vision is that NIDA grows with us and that we can take that opportunity of, of training, of employment and education uh, wherever we go. Great. Now talking about some of the experiences and the main experience that I can remember every time I've been to the rock, I've done it a few times now, is actually I, I climbed the rock. The first time I was yeah. 15 or 16, it was on a school excursion, a two week camping trip around Australia and we stopped at uh, Uluru for a couple of, couple of days. And I remember climbing up to the top and then I should have been doing this, but I was racing down the bottom to the bottom of the hill with one of my mates. And um, I was lucky I kept my footing properly and I, and I safely and did that. But I know now that you can't climb it. And I know that was a big decision that was made uh, just recently uh, with the elders and with the Indigenous Land Corporation. Can you go over as to why that, was, why that decision was made and, and how, how that affects or has it affected in the rock viewing? Uh, it was it was closed for two reasons. Firstly, uh, it's 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 their land. You know, it belongs to the Anunu people, and there are many sacred sites around the base of the rock. Uh, climbing the rock itself, it was about you know people 
may get injured doing that. And if you do get injured, the whole community feels that pain. Curiously, 40%, historically, 40% of people who arrive at Yalara or Uru had intentions to climb the rock, but only around 14% ever did. And I think that's a couple of reasons. Firstly, we're not all as dexterous as a 16-year-old Ian Swain. Deeper than you think. It's a lot deeper, yes. <laughs> and I think the other thing was you got there and you just thought, you know what, I just want to be part of this uh, amazing um, sense of place. And so they changed their mind. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot to do in Uluru, not just about uh, the rock itself. And when I go there on a regular basis, and every time I look at it, I see something different. You know, it's that kind of, you know, whether the light's changing or you see a different element of the rock. Uh, but equally, you know, Katajuda is, is almost as mysterious, you know. It's larger technically and uh, there's amazing walks throughout it. There's more to do than just to, to, to scale the rock. You mentioned uh, Katajuda, which when I grew up, it was, of course, called the Olgas. Um Explain that a little bit north of the Valley of the Winds. Sure. So Katajuda is a, well, <clears throat> Uluru is the largest single rock formation in the world. Uh, Katajuda is what you would call a, a composite rock formation. So it's made of different kind of rocks. Uh, and there's a, a valley through, it was many parts of Katajuda you can walk around or walk through. But there's a hike that's probably one of my favourites and it's called Valley of the Winds. And because of the shape of uh, the way uh, Katajuda sort of splits in the middle, there's a hike throughout the middle and you come to an amazing, about three and a half k's in, an amazing lookout. And you realise that what you see from the outside is not just a silhouette, it's as deep as it is wide. Uh, and it's quite a remarkable formation. I had the pleasure of flying over it on the way home on Sunday and it's just breathtaking. Right, and you've also got um, Sounds of Silence, the dinner that's been going for many, many years and I've gone to that yeah. many, many times and that's still very possible. You've got three or four different sites, I think, you use for that now. We do. So there's, there's three sites. Uh, some incorporate the field of light, which is also uh, a permanent installation now. So Star Pass incorporates that. So you can actually dine uh, at Sounds of Science incorporating the field of light. We have other sites a bit more remote. And that's all about the amazing uh, June top viewing platform. The sun setting over Katajuda. You've got Uluru in, in the distance. And as the sun sets, you walk down the pathway to the amazing Field of Light dinner. And that's really all about local produce, uh, appreciating that sense of place. And, of course, the sun setting on these icons of, of both Katajuda and Uluru and enjoying an amazing dinner out under the stars. Let's talk about Field of Light for a second because I've been there a couple of times and it's been so impressive. It was meant to be there for one year, I think, initially. Yeah. And that was the insulation and then it stayed on. Well, that's right. It's 50,000 light bulbs on stems. Uh, there's six colour palettes within it on six football fields, Australian football fields, uh, six football fields. And uh, it's, a, it's a light installation that is really about simulating desert flowers and the lights change or colour changes every six seconds. Uh, and it's one of the few inst art installations that you can actually walk throughout. So as the sun dips over Uluru or Katajuda, this light bed uh, comes to life. Uh, but you can also then view it, and it's one of those, uh, I guess, the, the great challenges where you can dine at it at night time, but the next morning you can go out there for sunset. So when you arrive uh, at uh, Field of Light, the only light you have is the stars and this amazing field, and then you watch the light change as the sun rises and the field goes to sleep. It's pretty cool. I know the artist, uh, we had dinner with him one time after he just installed it the first time. He has a, has a light experience out here in, in Pennsylvania at Longwood Gardens, which is just down our street. And he's quite well known. Um, but it's just amazing how it's going to stay on there for so long. It's great that it's still there. Um, there's also other experiences you can do from the, from the rock. 
as you can go to Kings Canyon, you can go to Mount Connor and yes. include a longer version, a longer stay there. What else is there you can do out there that you're aware of? Well, it's, it's really about depending on how active you want to be or how passive. And I'll talk in a minute about a, a changing guest profile we've seen as we come out of COVID, at least in this part of the world. But you can cycle around the rock. Uh, you can take a Segway. Um, one of the iconic experiences, I think, is riding a camel around the rock. So you can do a, a camel ride to the rock either at uh, sunrise or sunset. Uh, if you want something a little bit more uh, uh, speedy, then we have Harley rides. Uh, you can take a helicopter or a fixed-wing plane over both Katajuda and Uluru. Uh, you can even jump out of a plane if you want to. So there's a lot to do. Uh, but equally, there's a lot of free activities that we offer in, in the resort. And probably one of the most popular is our Bush Tucker guided walks, where um, our team, our local team, take you around and explain some of the Bush Tucker. And most don't realise that there's Bush Tomato, Bush Rosemary, uh, Bush Thyme, uh, all of which, of course, we use in our produce, uh, or take in as produce and use in our, our, our uh, food and beverage offerings. I remember when I took, last time I took the helicopter around there, there were certain areas that they couldn't fly around the rock, literally around it in respect of the elders of the community. That's, that's absolutely true. Even if we're doing commercial photography, uh, you know, we have a lot of people wanting to do uh, photo shoots out there, be it fashion or art or, or just uh, geography. And there's certain parts of the rock that you should never photograph. And so uh, because of that, we always work very closely with national parks. Uh, to ensure that we're adhering to every protocol that's required by the Anunu people. Right. Uh, how often do you meet with the Anunu people? Uh, very regularly. In fact, uh, we have Anunu representation on our, on our board uh, because it, it's very much about a partnership. Uh, the uh, Murujula Community uh, Aboriginal Council is a very important partner of ours. We work very, very closely with them in terms of really getting aviation going again and to ensure that we had the right protocols in place to ensure that... Um, the communities that were certainly deemed vulnerable were kept as, as safe as possible. You mentioned aviation and, and you look at where Uluru is or where As Rock Resort is, it's right in the centre of Australia and there's a lot of desert around there. It's hard to get to by vehicle. It's a long drive. I know my brother's done it a couple of times, but it's, it's a bit of an experience. Uh, flying is the best way to do it and aviation or the return of aviation, I should say, is critical to the su survival of the Ayers Rock Resort or the, or the thriving of it. Um, explain how you've gone through that process during COVID. Sure, sure. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think COVID years, I think we talk about it like Western dog years now, like one year is equivalent to about five. Yeah. And certainly true within the tourism industry. Uh, we enjoyed 33 flights uh, direct a week out of various Australian ports uh, in February. By the middle of August, that looked like none, one big donut. So uh, we had to work very closely with uh, both the community, with the airport that we operate, and with airports around Australia. As our borders opened up, now unlike the US, uh, we're also a federalised uh, country, but our borders closed to each other. So you literally couldn't travel between uh, Queensland and the NT or New South Wales and the NT. So uh, as those borders opened up, we had to work very closely with our airline partners to, to really get that capacity going again. And what that meant for us is that we had protocols in place uh, for the departing airport as well as the arriving airport. And what that looked like was our team actually being there, checking uh, the last 14 days whereabouts, everyone travelling, ensuring they had their medical documentation up to date, they had their border access up to date. And we actually paid for all that to ensure that uh, it was as... Uh, as safe as could be, that the well-being was protected as possible. Then when you arrived, 
at Uluru, you had to show your um, credentials to NT Health representatives just to ensure we're doing everything possible uh, to safeguard the well-being of the community. So it was certainly a team effort, uh, but delighted to say that now here we are, early December, and we're at around 40% of pre-COVID air capacity, and we think that'll grow. Did you have to send a lot of the employees or the team members back to their homes during the period of time of close down, or did you keep everybody there? Uh, a, a bit of both. So we did what we could to ensure that everyone stayed on. Uh, there was some stand downs uh, that were inevitable. And it's always difficult to do. Uh, but equally, uh, we're now scrambling for people. Um, ironically, as we as we ramp up again, people who were stood down were welcome to stay. And we furloughed all of their rental. Uh, we also run a very big rent roll there for staff. If you work there, you, you, you live there. So our staff quarters are a very big part of our operation. We didn't charge rent, uh, so we made it as, as easy as possible to stay. For those who chose to go back to their home state or home country, certainly they were given priority when we uh, restarted. I guess one of the, the challenges there is with our international borders currently closed. I say currently because we're all optimistic that will be short-lived. Um, those who went back to their home country found it difficult to get back, but their home state, we then work with the state territories to undergo quarantine protocols and get them back to work as fast as possible. So if everybody who stayed behind were basically in their own lockdown by, by purely by where the, where the location is, did you hear any great stories of, of kindredship or, or getting together and, and doing the right thing for everybody during that time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a lot of stories about cookouts and cook-ups and uh, the Great Australian Barbecue uh, coming into play. So, you know, as people were, were either not working or relying on less hours, there was a great sharing of hours. So we, we worked with a team to introduce new flexible work agreements. And what that looked like was if, if we had, uh, you know, 40 hours work a week, but for six people, they divvied it up and they all shared shifts. So at least everyone got some income as well as the base levels. Right. And it really was about a team of uh, a, a camaraderie. Uh, that and also they cross-trained. So you might have someone working in reception and then working in the garden or helping clean the pool or, uh, you know, helping clear tables. So it was really about multi-skilling and just ensuring that for those guests we could welcome, um, none of our challenges became theirs. And it was right. ensuring that we could offer that amazing guest experience even at a reduced level. Uh, and as we ramp up, that same philosophy exists where, uh, you know, our issues are going to be our issues not the guests, and uh, we're all about giving the guests an amazing experience, and I think yeah. the team has a job. There'll be some great stories that they'll share with their kids and grandkids as they, as they go through life. Listen, Matt, it's been really great talking to you and seeing you again after all this time. I wish we could see each other in person, but we'll be able to do that very soon, I hope. Um, awesome. I appreciate the time and, and sharing your stories and, and sharing the outlook of what's going on, and um, I wish you well and, and hope that everything gets back to normal as soon as possible. Well, Ian, always great to see you and certainly our, our best wishes to everyone out there in the US and we, we hope to see you soon and I can guarantee you that once these borders open, you will never feel more welcome anywhere in the world. <laughs> okay, mate. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye.